As you know, I grew up in the dark streets and tenements of Glasgow. And um, air raid shelters from the last war were still in our backyards. And a group of us guys, I remember there was um, Ian, there was Alistair, there was Sydney, there was another guy called Thomas, uh, and a few other girls and then some assorted people. Um, long before computer games and Xbox and those sort of things, I'll tell you, our favorite game in and out the dark alleys of where we lived was hide and seek. Did you ever play hide and seek when you were young? Good. That's right. We're all on the same page. Um, it was good, especially when it just began to get dark, because then you could play with flashlights. And then we all grew up. We went to university, we got married, we moved away, and we stopped playing hide-and-seek. Or did we? Perhaps we now play this childish game at a more sophisticated kind of level. We play it emotionally and spiritually, as we hear this morning. And that kind of cunning has been a game that people have played for a long time. We have become experts in hiding. We have become experts in hiding from God. We have become experts in hiding from each other. Many of us this morning would like the other people in the church to think that we're better than we really are. Why is that? We'll see. So let me take you back to a garden. It's a long, long time ago. A young couple have been enjoying the innocence of sex. There's no need for them to be embarrassed. They have been walking in the early light of the dawn of God. And so as you hear this story, may I invite you to stand. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafted than any of the animals the Lord God had said and had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid. And Father, ever since then, in one way or another, we have been playing hide-and-seek from you and hide-and-seek from each other and also ourselves. Help us this morning to come to you with unveiled faces and honesty. Amen. Please be seated. So as that episode comes to a close, we just read,
A cherubim with a flaming sword which can turn in every direction is put to stand guard on the way back into the garden. And so there is no way for them to come back into the light of God. And as the young couple leave, the light which used to be, in which they used to walk without any shame is now behind them. And you understand when you face the light, that's what you see. But when you turn your back to it, the light throws grotesque shadows that you see in front of you. And the further you get from the light, the longer the shadows become. And pretty soon, they realize that there's darkness all around them. And they're getting cold. And ever since then, we have been playing this cosmic game of hide and seek. You know, sometimes we want people to think we're better than we really are. That's hide and seek. This morning, you might have some failure in some area of your life, and, and you don't want other people to know that. But can I tell you that you are in good company because we are all failures? If you've ever blown it in some way, don't run away this morning from God or yourself. Because we've all blown it. Richard Foster, the Quaker, says in Celebration of Discipline, We view the church the fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. But we are sinners together. And in our acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. He says our humanity is no longer denied but transformed. You know, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and we are falling short of the glory of God. So if you have been hiding some failure in your life, can I just tell you, you're in good company because we're all there. And that story with Genesis sets the stage for a new game of hide and seek. We'll find in First John. We started it last week. I invite you to take your, your Bibles, please. Important you track with me Sunday by Sunday. First John chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 5. First John chapter 1. If you have a Bible, an iPad, or whatever, please track along with me this morning. We're going to look at this almost verse by verse. We'll always leave a lot behind, but we'll see what it says to us. Verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him declare to you. God is light. The Bible also says God is spirit and God is love. But here it says God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If you remember back in Genesis, it says let there be light. And that's the earliest expression of the nature, the character of God. Because without light, nothing will grow, nothing will be seen. Light is needed for life to exist. God is the light that reveals, that nurtures, that exposes. And then, as you read on with me from verse 6, we will find what we will call the first of three lies that we tell ourselves. And each lie will be met and responded by what I'll call this morning an antidote of truth. And each lie in the verses is introduced by the same words, if we claim, if we claim, if we claim. So that's how you find it. Lie number one. It's the lie that says that sin does not matter. Okay, that's lie number one. And it is met by the antidote, which is in verse six. If we claim to a fellow, sorry, if, if the lie is verse six. If we claim to a fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. <coughs> and we do not live by the truth. The seduction is that we see life in bits and pieces. It's like the jigsaw. 
we think that each piece of life and each part of life is separated from the others. And this fragmented way of looking at life allows people to play hide-and-seek within themselves. We think, we tend to think that faith is, well, that's just a private thing. And it doesn't relate to the ethics and the ins and outs of daily life. Not so. And we become, you remember the phrase, Gnostics. And we separate life then into bits and pieces. The talk of belief and the walk of behavior are separated from each other. That's a kind of internal hide-and-seek that we can play. The result is a distorted, disjointed view of ourselves. But it's not funny. It's not funny. It's a deadly game in which the various parts of our lives play hide-and-seek with each other. And if they ever come together, we might not even know that we're all parts of the same person. Hide-and-seek slowly causes the disintegration, the breakup of our wholeness as people. But there's healing. And the healing comes by telling the truth. Antidote number one. It starts with the move from what we'll call to de from deception to honesty. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. The pathway back to God for each one of us is to walk before him. If we want to know God in our lives, is the invitation to walk in truth and in light. That is the invitation to freedom. Any real change in our life always, always begins with honesty. We stop playing hide-and-seek with God. We stop playing hide-and-seek with ourselves. We say, this is the way things really are. It can be painful, but it is not as painful as continuing in the deceit. Do you remember the cry of David in Psalm 139? When he's been trying to run away from God and then realizes that he's to stop running from God, stop and turn, and that this God knows him intimately. This God has seen him even as, as he was being formed and unpacked in his mother's womb. And David prays, remember, search me, O God, and know my heart, and test me. And know my anxious thoughts, the things that struggle inside me. And see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It is to trust God that God will not hurt us. When we stop and turn and we say to God, this is, this is the honest mess of my life. It is to know this morning that God will not hurt us. And we invite him to explore the dark recesses on the corners of our lives. Honesty leads to confession. Confession leads to healing. Here's line number two. It's the lie that says sin does not exist. Verse 8, once again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and His truth is not in us. There is... There is probably no piece of theology or Christian doctrine which is more denied and rejected in our culture than the doctrine of what we call original sin. The teaching that sin has left its mark on each one of us right from the beginning. Probably nothing is denied in our culture more than that. The determinism of B.F. Skinner would say that we are shaped by our environment. The New Age movement would say we're really good and positive on the inside. Other people would say that values come from our community. But we need to ask, 
So who determines the values of our community? Optimistic humanism would say we're all climbing this ladder towards a glorious humanity of, of self-actualization. And if we would only rid ourselves of these old-fashioned ideas of sin, we would actually be able to grow and change the way we're supposed to be. You know, the idea that God is dead was spawned by the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He contended that Christianity and its teachings had paralyzed human beings. So he said, if we could do away with God, if we could do away with his moral restrictions, if we could do away with sin, we would then start to climb up to our potential. The teachings of Nietzsche influenced and shaped the thinking of a man called Adolf Hitler. You see, if you do away with God, if you do away with sin, if you do away with some standard of morality, it is only a short step in your mind to the creation of gas chambers. And hanging on a wall inside the death camps is a quote from Hitler. It says, I freed Germany from the stupid and degrading fallacies of conscience and morality. So we killed God in order to be free from his moral rules. Dostoevsky said, if God is dead, then everything is permissible. Living without God is an attempt to live outside of his moral law. It's a lie, but it's being believed. This game of hide-and-seek is being played in ever-increasing darkness. And our puny attempts to live without God creates all kinds of dilemmas. Our culture, for example, does not want censorship. But we think someone ought to internet the, someone ought to regulate the internet, especially in such areas as child pornography. But without a moral yardstick, who then sets the standards? We want personal freedom for abortion, but we want to stop the baby seal hunt. That is a strange twist of values. In our value-neutral culture, um, adultery simply means having an affair. Theft is helping ourselves to what is ours. <coughs> Selfishness is standing up to get our own way. There was the Stanley Cup riots last June, July. The last thing we're prepared to admit is that sin is at the root of this because, you see, in our culture we've gone away with sin and now it seems that the struggle for morality and meaning is even greater. The apologist Rabbi Zacharias says, The heaviest price exacted from a society living without God will be paid for by its young people. It is young people who always have to pay the personal and social price tags for this moral and intellectual anarchy. Jesus perhaps was right. Men love darkness rather than light because he says their deeds are evil. So in some strange twist of irony, we may actually find that we need the sin we have, to, we have done away with. Because it will turn out we cannot live without the reality, the acknowledgement of sin. But we still play hide and seek. Here's antidote number two against that lie. It's the move from what I'll call denial to confession. Verse 9, First <coughs> John, look at it. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us, he says, from all unrighteousness. Confess simply means that you agree with God. You say, this is the way things really are. Confession is when we stop pretending and we start turning to God for cleansing. 
The word purify in that is what's called a present tense. It means God keeps on cleansing. He keeps on forgiving. His forgiving love pours over our lives again and again. Not just once, but over and over again. We cannot change the past. We have to, we have to live with its consequences. But we can't be free from the guilt and the burden of the past. Lie number three. It's the lie that says sin is not personal. Verse 10, once again, if we claim, there's that echo again, if we claim that we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. John moves from this abstract theory about sinlessness to personal reality. Surely we say we've not sinned. It is the denial of our own sinful attitudes and actions. Perhaps this is the darkest of all three lies. It's the unwillingness to face our own sin and struggle. Much of the time we can avoid and step around the gross sins that even our society condemns. But let me ask you, what about the subtle sins of the heart? Where no one really sees. Who can really see greed? Who really sees lust? Who really can measure in us a critical spirit? Who can weigh the bitterness that makes our heart heavy? Who sees covetousness? No one really sees these things. But they can breathe inside us, silently choking us to death. And so we continue to embrace and walk in the darkness. You see, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. The lies continue to seduce us. The lie says, oh, sin doesn't cost anything. These sins of greed and covetous and pornography, they don't cost anything. Oh, yes, it does. Sin is expensive, both for individuals and society. Swiss psychologist Paul Tournier says one very, very thoughtfully, a short sentence. He says, our sense of sin lacks depth. Got that? Our sense of sin likes death. You know, of all of the world's faiths, Christianity is utterly realistic about sin. It doesn't try to explain it away. It doesn't try to reclassify it. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't give it fancy words. Rather, it drags it out into the light. It refuses to let it get away. It is utterly realistic about its ugliness. It drags it kicking and screaming onto a cross and nails it to its beams and says, you're done. And so the antidote for this is a move from what we will call from guilt to forgiveness. Do you know the Bible tells us that there's two kinds of guilt? First of all, it's a false guilt. This is the kind of guilt that people place on one another. This is when we say to one another, you, no, you ought to do more of this. You know, you really ought to be doing that. And we just load this false guilt onto one another. We try to make one another feel bad. It traps us. You know what? It just makes us feel crummy. And then there's what we'll call true guilt. That's the kind of guilt that comes from God. The scriptures say, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. It leaves no regret. A worldly sorrow, worldly guilt brings death. 
This guilt from God touches us at the very core of our being and sears us so deeply that it heals us. It doesn't trap us. It actually sets us free. There's a terrible little phrase that we use sometimes. Let's just forgive and forget. Can I suggest to you that at CCBC we need to delete that from our vocabulary? The problem is we don't forget. We remember. We remember what day it was. We remember what the weather was like. We remember where we were. We remember every detail of some collision that we had with someone else. <laughs> Something that broke our relationships. The next time you say, and another thing, you know what? You're remembering. And you say to your spouse or to someone else, you know, and another thing you did. You're going down the list. And you're remembering. You're remembering. And some years ago there was a very popular idea about forgiveness that went through the Christian church. That, um, that forgiveness meant accepting something as though it never happened. Broken relationships can be restored as though they've never been broken. I struggled with that. I thought that was biblically wrong and emotionally dangerous. Because forgiveness says, you know what, this thing happened. Forgiveness says the adultery happened. Forgiveness says the anger happened. The hurt was real. Forgiveness does not hide the event. Rather, it says the event happened, but the sting and the pain of the event can be released. And we can be free through forgiveness. We often think forgiveness just pardons us. Oh no, it's much, much more. When forgiveness is properly exercised between ourselves and God and ourselves and another person, forgiveness is really to heal. Not just pardon, to heal. It's in the death of the cross. Christ, as John says, is our atoning sacrifice. It's the process of restoring things to wholeness, taking the fragmented parts of our being and melting them back together into a whole person. Christ does not simply pardon my sinful acts and then abandon me to struggle again and again. Rather, His forgiveness is that costly enterprise that forgives me for being the very kind of person who would harbor such acts and then He works in me to to change and transform me through his love to be a different kind of person honesty leads to confession confession leads to forgiveness forgiveness leads to change forgiveness saves the expense of anger the cost of hatred Forgiveness prevents the damage of relationships. It restores the healing power of freedom. The result is that God wants so far as in the first place His freedom. So John writes, beginning of chapter 2, look at it. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have the one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, says John, but also for the sins of the whole world. The story sometimes is told like this. God is so holy. So holy. Which means he gets really, really angry with sin. And when he looked at the mess that our world was in that we had made, he became so angry that he needed to find one person that he could dump all of his anger on. And that one person was Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is in the heart of God 
to heal and to forgive. The Bible says it was not God's anger. It was God's love that stimulated to send Jesus Christ and to nail him to the cross. Calvary, where Christ died for us and the sins of the world, was the result not of God's anger. It was the result of God's love. God chose to play this role of the seeker in this cosmic game of hide and seek. So what do we do? What do we do? A great little verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, And we all with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, we all, and he uses this intriguing phrase, with an unveiled face. Behind that little phrase is an Old Testament story. And here's the story. Moses had gone up to meet God, and the, the light of God that shone in his face was so intense, so bright, that when Moses returned and came back to meet the people, he had to wear a veil to hide the glory of God. That's the picture. But as time goes on, the glory of God that had shone in the face of Moses, that he had to hide from people, that glory of God began to fade. Began to fade. But Moses, like all of us humans, still kept wearing the veil. It seems that there's something in human nature that wants to make us appear better to other people than we really are. That's a veil. I told you I grew up in Glasgow, and when I was five, six, seven, eight, so on and so forth, I had three sets of clothes. And those of you who are older might understand this. Those of you who are younger won't have a clue what I'm talking about. Just go with it. I had three sets of clothes. I had clothes that I could wear when I came home and I went out to play. Those were my jeans. They could get dirty, they could get scuffed up, and that was fine. I didn't get into trouble. And then I had clothes that I wore when I went to school. Monday through Friday went to school. I don't want to fascinate you, but most of the time for me that was a kilt. And then I had Sunday clothes. Those were going to church clothes. Some of you understand that? I'd, I'd go into church clothes. Nothing wrong with that. It's just where our society is at at that particular time. I realize that's not where we are today. <clears throat> but you, when you're going to church, you would never, ever think of going in your play clothes. And not, certainly not your school clothes. You put on your going to church Sunday clothes. And they were the best you had. They were the newest and the best... And that was how you dressed up to go to church. That's fine. But perhaps, perhaps it communicated just a subtle message. That when you came to meet God, you had to dress up. Somehow God didn't see you or meet you or know you in your jeans. Or in your school clothes. When you met God, you only met God in your dress-up clothes. He didn't let God see you in your ordinary working clothes. Now move that with me into your heart. 
if we think that God can only see us at our best, then he never gets to change those parts of our lives which are less than our best. And we'll always be trying to hide something from him when we come with our dress-up clothes. That means a veiled face. We're not being honest. It's a line in one of the opening songs we sung. Beautiful line from the song Majesty. It says, Your grace has found me just as I am. Remember that line? But you understand that when we come to God with an unveiled face, no pretense, no hiding, no masks, face to face, this honesty is what changes us. That's where Adam's trouble was. He said, I was ashamed and so I hid. And so he can't be changed. But when we come to God with this unveiled face, no pretenses, no hiding, no masks, even with each other, face to face, that's what transforms us and changes us. We stop telling lies. Let me ask Winston and the worship team to come back. We're going to close in just a moment this part of our service with an old, old hymn. I don't know if you sing here very much. But many of you would know it. It's a hymn that Billy Graham has used for over 50, 60 years to close his crusades. The old hymn is Just As I Am Without One Plea, but that your blood was shed for me. And for decades and decades, Billy Graham used this hymn and invited people to come to Christ. But the hymn was not written for that reason. Just as I am was written by a lady called Charlotte Elliott. And Charlotte Elliott struggled deeply in her own life with, her, um, with all kinds of emotional baggage. She struggled with depression. She struggled with doubt. She struggled with conflict. And she was in agony before God that somehow, what did she do? Where could she hide all this stuff? And then one day in her life as she wrote that hymn, Charlotte Elliott realized the truth. That she could come to God just the way she was. As it were, take off her Sunday clothes. She didn't have to pretend to God. She could come, she could bring her conflicts and struggles and doubt and fightings and fears, whatever it was. And so she wrote hymns like, just lines, just as I am, poor wretched blind, sight riches healing of the mind, all I need and you I find. And you will receive and welcome and pardon and cleanse and leave because your promise, I believe. That's why she wrote to him. I'm going to ask those in the next few minutes as we sing it. This might stretch you a little bit emotionally, but trust me. We're going to start it singing seated. And if out of this morning's worship, and if out of one line of this hymn, Maybe a line speaks to you and says, I have, I have conflicts. But that's just the way I am. God loves me that way. As we sing, and most of us are seated, I'm going to invite you to stand. Just you. And remain standing as you sing. Maybe this morning in a moment you just realize as we sing this hymn that God loves you right now, right now, right now. As much as he ever could. And that is to touch your life and overwhelm you. And God's grace meets you just the way you are. You stand up. Don't worry about your spouse, the person in front of you, behind you. You just stand and keep on singing. And maybe over our sanctuary this morning, people, as they respond personally, they stop hiding. 
one of the lines of this hymn speaks to the people begin to stand. You understand me? And at the end I'll bring us all together. It's saying we just stop telling lies. We come just to where we are. You know, you don't have to put on your Sunday best for God. Or for me. Or for anyone else. So if there's a thought this morning, a line in this hymn, God speaks to you and says, I love you right now. As much as I've ever loved you. And you just feel the touch of His grace. Would you just stand up to acknowledge that as we sing, stay standing. Maybe someone will join you. Maybe someone else will join you. Don't be afraid. God will hurt you.